Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. I was interviewed by ABC National Radio for a show called This Mortal Coil with Sarah McDonald. We recorded the conversation in March of 2017 in Sydney. This Mortal Coil. nightlife for this mortal coil and this is where we talk to someone about their life, about their belief system and their spiritual journey if you like. Catherine Ingram is a renowned Dharma teacher who's been leading Dharma dialogues and retreats since 1992 in the US and in Australia. Now these dialogues are public inquiries into Awakened Awareness, and she also hosts Silence Retreats, has written a number of books, including In the Footsteps of Gandhi, Conversations with Spiritual Social Activists, and In the Deep is her podcast, In the Deep with Catherine Ingram. She talks about a passionate presence, and her novel is called A Crack in Everything, and yes, she is a friend of the late Leonard Cohen, if you recognise that reference. Welcome to Nightlife, Catherine. Thank you so much, Sarah. What is the Dharma? For me, the definition is being interested in and finding a kind of underlying harmony through which you move, almost like there's a current that flows underneath almost any circumstance, relationship, difficulty, loss, death, joy, gain, all of it, that there's a Dharma current and that current has to do with the way that you taste this life itself and the way that you experience something like loss. On the one level, you're experiencing grief. On another level, the way that the Dharma kind of flows into that experience is you're experiencing a gentle letting go, not a ripping apart or trying to hurry up the grief or anything like that, but just a recognition of loss as a part of life. And the letting go starts to to overcome over over time, and not entirely either. I mean, I lost my brother who died at the age of thirty eight and it was you know uh, what fifteen years ago, and even just the other night, I had a dream about him, and I had in the dream this recognition that it had been a long time since we had spoken, and I had this intense almost panicked urgency in the dream to to speak to him like a desperation and a sorrow and i woke up in that in that feeling and of course immediately the understanding the recognition comes my brother's gone but this softness that comes with a with a habit of living in a certain quiet frequency in oneself and that's what i would say is the sort of habit of dharma is that you you live in that kind of quiet ground and you perceive through that a lot because that that becomes you know your resting point your default position and it can't stop bad dreams and it doesn't stop grief no but it changes how you experience correct yes. life and loss and grief yes and dreams <laughs> and dreams and everything. and everything yeah and also the ways that you might experience someone praising you you know, you don't really take that on in a big personal, you know, somebodiness way. You even that has a lightness to it. You know, mm. and so for you, you you had a, a a guru in India who helped you. I had a teacher in India who was incredibly inspirational in that way. 
But I would say that he, you know, he pointed to the understanding and he embodied it very well himself. But for each of us, this taste is so unique, you know. So he really didn't have so-called teachings, nor do I. It's more that one provides, in my case, with my offerings of the sessions and the retreats, I just provide a context on which we can sit you know, in this frequency or have a kind of entrainment on a certain wavelength, you know, on a certain broadcast of, of, of your own quiet, simple self. And you very much involve silence in that. Let's talk about silence. You, you do silent retreats and then you have moments of, uh, of silence in your Dharma dialogue. In the public sessions, yeah. We live in such a noisy world. Right don't we? And where we're rarely alone and we're rarely silent and there's so much coming in even when we are alone that reduces silence. What are we missing? What is there in silence that we are so missing? Without some relationship to your own inner quiet, let's say, because sometimes people hear the word about being silent and they imagine like being in solitary confinement in a prison or on, you know, having to be in some kind of cave. It doesn't have to be that unless it's your nature that you want to be in a cave, but fair enough. But, but it's more about um, uh, living in the quiet of your own heart. Through, through activity, through engagement, but having a relationship to kind of a restful, easeful place that you use as your own touchstone to sanity. And it's also a wellspring of genius and creativity, by the way. It's a wellspring, that, that place of quiet and relaxed presence is a, um, it, it's, it's a font, it's an ally for all kinds of lovely aspects that kind of come with it as a package deal. You feel more tender toward life. Like when you're sitting in your sweet spot, let's say, you feel more magnanimous. You kind of feel in love with the world. You don't want to hurt any little thing, right? You're careful. You feel more generous. You feel more, you have more of a sense of wonder. You feel more, well, first of all, there's a lot more discernment because when you're when you're easy in yourself and you don't have some big agenda that's coming from your fear and panic, you are able to perceive clearly, right? You can think more clearly. Everything. And, yeah. and, and feel more clearly. But how is silence a, a really a way of helping you find that sweet spot? Why do silent retreats help us find that? Because the whole, the whole retreat is set up to maximize your being able to relax. Now, in my retreats, we have one, we have two sessions per day of Dharma dialogues, one in the morning and one in the evening. Um, otherwise, everything else is silent. But there is a little bit of, of kind of keeping on track and the group sharing with each other their own experiments with this. But, um, but for the most part, it's silent. And the silence does all the work. I mean, you just sort of plunk yourself there and walk around quietly and eat quietly. And, and you know, that, that channel starts to broadcast inside your own self without any effort. So I do recommend to people to take time for quiet if you can. Lots of people don't have that option. They have really busy lives and families and, and their work and, and so on. But any time you can, take a little bit of time just to walk in the park. Or if you're in a really stressful day, go home and just take a long bath or a shower or go lay on the grass or 
you know, look at the dog or the birds, you know, um, anything you can that interrupts the revving up of the engine of mind and thought and worry and regret and the whole, the big story, the big story of me that people wake up into in the day and have to then serve us all day like a slave. Um, one becomes more and more disinterested in that. One becomes more interested in this very simple presence that is on offer any moment you choose to notice. And you, you start to make it very, very um, kind of like a love affair. You know, it's like the way that you're not having to make yourself be attracted to a person if you actually just can't help but falling in love with them, you know. It becomes more like that. You start to feel pulled. I sometimes use the story of uh, it's like being pulled to a glacier lake that you suddenly discover in your neighborhood after you've been swimming your whole life in this other dirty pond nearby, let's say that's the a pond of just neurotic thought and struggle and worry and hassles, and suddenly you discover this glacier lake of being. And it's and, clearer. And it's clear and it's kind of fragrant and it's lovely and you feel baptized every time you come out of it. And... So it's not a matter of having to force yourself to practice it. It's that you're attracted to be there. And so I, I always encourage people to have these moments and then let yourself notice that you feel very compelled, impelled to be there in those in that way of being. On Night Love, we're talking to Catherine Ingram about Dharma Dialogues and, and her work in this area and also silence you tell some stories in, in uh, your book, Passionate Presence, where what happens while people are silent, they still have relationships. You can feel a lot about another person in these, in these retreats. Yeah, we you? Don't, you get don't, to know them in a way. You do get to know them, not that you're talking to them or interacting with them, uh, rather, uh, but um, you sense them just just as animals might sense each other and know each other or just as you might sense certain animals if you were around a group of animals they each would have their own personality and you would know it um i one time was it was in the 70s i was somewhere in asia i was sitting at a cafe and i saw a person who I had been in many silent retreats with, in Buddhist retreats in those days, I'd, I had shared many, many, many hours of this person, and I felt that I really knew him. But I realized in that moment I didn't know his name. I never knew his name. We had only ever been in silent retreats together, and yet I knew him. You know, I, I knew him and felt him. and mm. So we are, as humans, very strong um, transmitters and receivers of information. As we know from neuroscience, we're, there's a lot of informational exchange that's going on, you know, under the radar. And we can sense each other um, in all kinds of ways. Now, when people calm down and, and are, you know, are in their clear seeing, clear perceiving simple beingness there's a there's a very gentle transmission that's going out it's a very lovely lovely transmission which we all know you know we all know there are certain people that you get together with and something just relaxes right 
even without words. And then you're comfortable in silence with those exactly. people more likely, aren't That's you, right. as well? Yeah. You're very comfortable. Have you ever been in a silent retreat with someone and then found out that their other their identity within the noisiness of the world is completely different to how you felt them and yes. went in a silent retreat? Yes, sometimes that can happen. Sometimes, you know, and also what can happen is that after the retreat, the personality can kind of assert itself in a different way, you know. And that's how it is with yeah. with us. <laughs> What's it like when you're watching people? Uh, because we often people are very afraid of silence, I would mm. think, and and find this a very scary place to to embrace. What's it like to watch that for you when you're watching people uh, experience silence, possibly for the first time in their life that they've allowed themselves to go there? What do you observe? Well, it's kind of delightful because I have known a lot of people to come to retreats and it being maybe their very first retreat. So there is an apprehension. Um, but almost to the one, I, I can't even think of anyone for whom this isn't true. They just sink in into a, a very deeply, you know, happy place. Happier than... I mean, You've never so, had anyone really freak out? No, I've never had anyone at my retreats freak out. <laughs> at that. Um, um, Many, many people have told me who've come to my retreats that they imagined that at the end of their lives, that these times that they had spent in the retreats are going to, that those memories are going to pop in a way that is sort of disproportionate to most of the other time that they spent because it feels so richly alive. And we're really not adding on. We're not adding on any program or any training or anything. It's really a stripping away. It's a it's a subtraction more than an addition but what happens then is that you know you just feel like the world wakes up around you that you find yourself noticing the color of the green of the grass or the blue of the sky or some little caterpillar on a leaf or it's like you almost have childlike um, memories and experiences in those contexts so they along with very profound insight along with you know, the the ways that you can look at things in your life, what has happened. Um, well, in, in Buddhism, a lot of these of meditation and retreat is a preparation for death, that, that uh, it's getting ready for death because we do die alone. And if we can keep that, you know, if we can stay calm in that, perhaps that, that trains our mind for death. Right. They put a lot more emphasis on that particular last moment than I do. I, I really feel let's, let's really get it of what it is to be alive, you know, until that moment. Mm -hmm. And then it serves you well at that moment. I know a lot of one of my really close longtime student just died in um, January and she only had uh, four months from the time of diagnosis. She, she was perfectly fine four months previously, but then had a brain tumor. And um, I must say, she was really light and clear all the way to the end. It was really, it was really inspiring for me um, to just see how, without any denial, without any drama, big, no big, you know, sentimentality, or just incredible. Um, Clarity. And, why, and why was that? Because she'd done a lot of silent retreats? Yeah. Or well, because she had this, she, this habit, not just through the retreats. The retreats really help induce the habit, but that habit had become so strong uh, for her that, 
you know, she wasn't going to fight with the reality of the situation. She did everything she could, but she had a very aggressive and advanced brain tumor, two of them actually. And, um, and so she wasn't going to, uh, you know, go down in rage and battle. She just went into some kind of profound acceptance. She said all the words she needed to say to the loved ones and, um, she had an incredible mirthfulness through it. Uh, we laughed a lot in the last few weeks of her life. She called. I'd, I was here in Australia. She would call me, and uh, we would just laugh at the uh, absurdity of everything. She went peacefully into the into the light yes. to some extent. Yes. And so, Catherine, when uh, how how important is this if it, afterwards? See, you go to a retreat and stuff, and I've, I've done a couple as well, and then you go out and, yes, everything is shiny and new and your brain feels like it's been washed out and yeah, had a bit of an enema washed. and the, <laughs> yeah. the sky is bluer and you feel so light. How do we keep that going, though, you know, when you get back to reality, bump, hit back in, into the frazzled lives we lead? Right. I mean, of course, the retreat experience is a more um, intense taste of all of this. But as I said before, it becomes kind of a love affair to keep that channel open in yourself and to throughout your day, just sprinkle as much as you can sprinkle in moments, little free sample moments. Uh, just take a moment, you know, you walk outside from your office, you just take, look at the sky for a moment, you know, this is a kind of retraining of even of just, you know, the neural pathways, basically, you know, you just have more and more of this be what your attention is going to. You're basically directing your attention a bit until it becomes more habitual. You, you direct it. And you don't have to direct it into some unreality. You're directing it into reality so that you're just feeling yourself. You're, you're using your senses as a doorway for the kind of awareness and presence. And how would this differ to, say, meditation or mindfulness? That Mindful, that? Classic mindfulness is notation. It's your breathing, so you're noting either the in and out of the breath or the rising and falling of the abdomen, or you're experiencing tasting, 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 thinking, thinking, hearing, hearing, lifting forward, placing if you're walking. It's a lot of notation. This is not notation. This is, you can in silence feel yourself breathing or in silence using your eyes. You're not necessarily having to say seeing, you are seeing, um, so on. So you're really bringing your awareness, allowing your awareness to float very restfully and choicelessly, as Krishnamurti re referred to it, in, in present time, mostly, um, without having to chain it down to some kind of notation program. So that's the difference. Mm -hmm. And what do you think as, as um, Westerners we most struggle with in this? Is it about being present in each moment? Why is it so hard for us? What have we done to our brains that this can be so <laughs> tricky, that we do need to go to silent retreats to get into kind of get ourselves ready for this new way of being. I think one big key is that we're overloaded with information. We're, we're experiencing, I forgot, I read it recently, hundreds of times per day more bits of information than people of old did. Um, hundreds and hundreds of times per day. You know, our brains have not adapted to that kind of speed up of information, nor should they, in my opinion. But it's 
like you get in lockstep in this culture and it's like you there's we're all afflicted with this sense that we have to keep up and if you slow up a little bit did you ever see uh, that show Lucille Ball when she was at the chocolate factory? Lucy at the chocolate factory. She's at a she's at a factory and the the chocolate cakes oh, are coming by yes, and, and she's, she's packing them or something. And yeah, she, but yeah. she like she the starts. Belt. It's yes, it's a conveyor yeah. belt and she starts like missing one and suddenly they're just all piling up and it's yeah. just impossible, right? And it's kind of like that. The the but without chocolate, right? Without <laughs> the chocolate, <laughs> with things less fun than chocolate. <laughs> so the sense that you. You know, in the morning you wake up and there's a flood of emails to answer. I mean, think about it. Not that long ago, we didn't have email. I didn't have email growing up, certainly. I didn't have email until quite late here in my life. Um, and, you know, even if you went out, you came home, there was no messages on the phone because there was no answering machine, right? It, there was a, a an innate spaciousness in our lives that is now gone. So... To really understand that there is a huge cost to this kind of speed up. And it's why I think it's a lot why it's sort of driving people crazy. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of depression. The kids are all, you know, having to be drugged to go to school, it seems. And, uh, and, the, and the more they spend on, more time they spend on social media, apparently there's a correlation with uh, depression um, because you're constantly you know, comparing yourself to the little avatars, fabulous lives that are out there on the social media, you know. So um, it's all to be, in my view, challenged. And that's what's so interesting, too, when you step out of it, you step out of the swirl. And instead of feeling like you're missing out, it feels like you're actually coming home, you're dropping in to your own self, to, to your own joy, to your own ease, and to love itself. You know, you just feel more loving. Um, I, I saw you on online. You were talking about Leonard Cohen, who is a friend of yours, and at a, his concert was like a church, and that he was just so present and so loving. What did he achieve in his life that gave him that ability? Because he was, you know, very much on the he he still toured till very late in life, and that would have been really hard work on his body, mind, and spirit. Well, he had a great love of Dharma, of of quiet. Um, he spent quite a lot of time. Uh, at Mount Baldy, which is in California, with a particular Zen master there who died, Sasaki Roshi. But Leonard um, had uh, Leonard was a Dharma guy. I mean, for for fifty years, that was really his passion, and he lived a relatively simple life. He was not that into uh, you know big social scenes at all. You know, he only hung out with his few friends and his family in terms of socializing mm. and. Um, so that that frequency was very familiar to him. And as we can see, the incredible genius that pours out of that, you know, I think that was part of, I mean, he obviously had a brilliant mind all along, but I think part of what he offered us uh, was the the nuances that come from a quiet mind and heart, you know. Yes, you say it can unlock a creativity that, that, that's been blocked yeah. very much. And yet a lot of creativity and art and comedy comes from pain often. People, you know, kind of think they lose their edge if they're too happy. <laughs> I've heard people say that, people, creative people. Yeah. And there's, some, you know, there's something to be said for it. But, um, you know, sometimes the kind of art that comes from... And the kind of comedy and the kind of drama that comes from 
um, you know, just wrecked with sorrow and guilt, it, it, it will have that fragrance to it as well. What's, what's beautiful is someone who understands sorrow from a quiet place, then there's something that comes that lets the listener or the viewer know that here's, here's a way to look at this and hold it that touches touches in a universal way, touches all of us. Mm. I read a quote um, that I really liked. Patti Smith was talking about um, her experience of having kind of flubbed a bunch of lines while she was, um, she was singing Blowing in the Wind in the acceptance, as the acceptance speech for Bob Dylan's receiving of the Nobel Prize. Oh, yes, yes, yep, I Nobel saw Prize. that. Yeah, she made the mistake. She, she made yeah. the line. Yep. And then she wrote about that um, in The New Yorker, which was very interesting. But anyway, in this little piece that she wrote, uh, she said that her father had once said to her that time doesn't heal all wounds, but time gives you the tools to, uh, to, to handle it. I forgot exactly the words, but to, to endure. Mm. Um, and I think that those kinds of perspectives, right, knowing acknowledging that something's really, really hurt and they're going to hurt, you know, and not trying to sort of transcend that experience in any way. To be in it. To be in it. But to also be in it with a certain clarity of, of understanding. And, uh, yeah, Leonard was really uh, fabulous at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you haven't chosen a Leonard Cohen song for us. Uh, Tell us what song you have chosen tonight. I have chosen my favorite song. It's been my favorite song for almost 35 years since I first heard it. It's by Van Morrison, and it's called Rave On John Donne. And why have you chosen this? Tell us about it. Okay. I, uh, the, the, first of all, music, mu- musically and lyrically, it's fantastic. And the whole... The whole concept, rave on John Donne, in the song he goes through lots of other uh, rave on characters. He's basically saying, you know, live your life, celebrate it, be passionate, you know, be wild, be brave. It's, it, that's really the, the undercurrent of the message. Um, and I happen to think musically it's just gorgeous. So um, it's... It's the song I've asked to be played at uh, at my memorial. <laughs> you already, yeah. I already know that. You already know that. Well, you know, that's very important, though, isn't it? It's really, there's nothing as bad as a bad funeral. I was just saying the other day, I think I find them incredibly frustrating. It's a bad wedding, you know, you can, yeah. you can make up for it. But yeah. a bad funeral, you want to have a good send-off. So <laughs> let's hear it. Thank you so much for tonight. You're welcome. Down through the weeks of ages in the moss pond, dark, dank pools. Rev on down through the industrial revolution, empiricism, the atomic and nuclear age. Rev on down through time and space, down through the corridors. Rev on words on printed page. Ravon, you left us infinity and well-pressed pages for the field. Drive on with wild abandon, up-tempo, frenzied hills. Ravon, Walt Whitman, nose down in wet grass, 
Rev on, fill the senses on nature's bright green shady path. Rev on, Omar Khayyam. Rev on, Kahil Gibran. Oh, what sweet wine we drinketh. A celebration will be held. We will partake the wine and break the holy bread. Rev on, let a man come out of Ireland. Rev on, Mr. Yates. Rev on down through thy holy rosy cross. Rev on down through theosophy and the golden dawn. Rev on through the writing of a vision. Rev on, rev on, rev on, rev on, rev on, rev on. Rev on. Rev on.